Hello, I'm Conor Geerty and this is Leaders in Shape, a podcast series in which I get to speak with some of the most influential figures shaping the fields of social sciences, humanities and the arts. For this episode, I was delighted to be joined by the best-selling writer and founder of the Everyday Sexism Project, Laura Bates. We talked about online extremism, how the internet has enabled new forms of misogyny and societal expectations around masculinity. But to start our conversation, I asked Laura about how she spotted the gap around coverage of the online communities explored in her new book, Men Who Hate Women. Um, Well, it's quite extraordinary that it is a gap, really, because these men are not quiet about what they're doing. Um, But I think it's both a gap in awareness and a gap in perception. So partly many people don't know that these communities exist at all. But those who do tend to really minimise and dismiss them. So it's a kind of double problem of perception, really. What we're talking about are online communities of men who, who really despise women who believe that women should be reduced entirely to their sexual function, should be dehumanized, objectified, should be forced to have sex with men, should be kept as uh, slaves, sexual slaves. Um, And these are men, extraordinarily, who have acted on these views. They are men who want to be having sex with women and, and aren't and blame women for that fact because they believe that they are owed sex. These are men who call themselves incels or involuntarily celibate. And they believe that they should rise up in a so-called day of retribution or an incel uprising or rebellion. And repeatedly, men have acted on that principle. Men have gone offline, very much groomed and radicalized by these extremist spaces and massacred women from Elliot Roger in Santa Barbara, who massacred women at a sorority house, um, trying to kill women who had said that they wouldn't sleep with him, to Alec Manassian, the Toronto van attacker, who drove a speeding rental van into as many pedestrians as he could, Um, 80% of his victims being women who told police when they arrested him that he was an incel, that he'd been radicalized online, referenced Roger, in fact, and yet you then have police chiefs coming out giving statements in which they say there is no evidence that this has anything to do with terrorism. And so you have media reports speculating about mental health issues and talking about isolated incidents and lone wolves. But actually, these are just two men out of a string who have gone offline and and acted in the name of, of extremist hatred of a specific demographic group trying to create political change, trying to spread terror through mass violence, men whose actions absolutely tick every box for the international definition of terrorism and yet again and again even though these men in the last 10 years alone have murdered or seriously injured over a hundred people simply aren't classified as terrorists and as a result the radicalization and grooming techniques increasingly sophisticated ones that they're employing to groom young boys aren't seen as such either and for me that was why I felt an urgent need to write the book because I became aware that these things were happening at scale and that their offline in influence was much greater than people recognized. And yet the average person you speak to on the street has simply never heard the word incel. And that seemed quite extraordinary to me. There are even these things called pickup artists who are having these seminars. You went, the book is very funny. I think you went to one. I mean, these these guys show up now and again in person, but mainly it's a world of, of the net, isn't it? But not hidden away. It's just... No. What another colleague I had. He wrote these books, fantastic sociology books, and he wrote about moral panic. Mm. And he's died now, Stan Cohen. And I'm not saying he would have put this point, but here's a new technology, the web. It does things that nobody's ready for, prepared for. And there's always going to be somebody 
who comes along and says, oh, my goodness, the world is transformed. We're doomed. Is there a little bit of that as a criticism of you that you're getting it out of proportion? Come on. It's I mean, nobody's ever heard of it. Laura. So there you are. It's not a big deal. Do you get much of that? What you might call a kind of pushback? Um, certainly some, of course. Um, but I think you just have to look at the numbers. I mean, the statistics are there quite robustly to evidence the fact that nobody is suggesting that we're talking about all men here, of course, but we are talking about a number in around the hundreds of thousands. And you can very much evidence that based on the number of men who are active participants of these various communities. Or you mentioned pickup artistry. Well, pickup artistry is a hundred million dollar global industry where men are paying thousands of dollars in these so-called boot camps in pretty much any major city around the world pretty much on any given weekend to be taught how to sexually harass and assault women by men who are leading lights in the so-called industry who have themselves often boasted about rape or argued that rape should be decriminalized so the statistics are there I think to back up the fact that you know we are talking about men going out and massacring women I don't think that there is a, a legitimate argument that it's sort of that's something we should simply brush off and you're overreacting to be upset about it but I also think we're not talking about something newfangled here we're not talking about the internet causing this problem and it's a newfangled thing it's actually a, a centuries old problem you know the misogyny that's being expressed here is as old as the hills it's just that social media and and online platforms are providing new ways to galvanize it to connect those who subscribe to these ideologies to embolden them by association with one another and unfortunately and i think most worryingly to groom and radicalize young men into these ideologies and that's where I think it's it's failing young people if we say oh don't make a fuss about this and and stick our heads in the sand yeah it's interesting it's around for a long time hatred women and so on absolutely and remove the and so on but possibly there's a particular circumstance which is the apparent success of what you might call broadly and totally non-judgmental way here a feminist agenda of pushing ahead levels of equality and allied to cuts in social provision, and you talk about, I want to come back to it, you talk about the impact of such cuts. Men's lives are being truncated. And so it's a combination of missed opportunity for them and apparent success for women that kind of drives a sort of dislike, which is new, a sort of conservative reaction against progress. Would you yeah. be a bit of that? Yes, absolutely. I think, and in a similar way that we've seen a backlash against progress in other civil rights movements, um, there is often, I think, a, a mistaken, overblown perception of the extent of progress that's been made. And it's something that these groups are extremely clever at capitalizing on and turning into resentment. There is this sense of kind of aggrieved entitlement amongst men. And it's very easy, I think, to turn small feminist wins into apparent attacks on men. But the real tragedy here is that it's all of us losing out, that everything that, that I'm taking issue with, everything that I'm looking to tackle, whether you're looking at a kind of form of societally mandated masculinity that is actually suffocating and, and brutally difficult for men themselves, is actually something that is negatively impacting people of all genders. This isn't about men against women, but very often there is a kind of media presentation and manipulation of the facts to suggest that. And particularly in these online communities, it's very much weaponized in this way. So progress towards equality is weaponized against women or against people of color and used to suggest that there needs to be some kind of reactionary protest, knee-jerk defensive response against that. 
And all of that sends the message that men will be harmed by the advancement of a so-called feminist agenda. But the reality is that if you look at that feminist agenda, everything that feminists are fighting for would actually have a massive positive impact on the issues that are affecting men. If you want to talk about custody, if you want to talk about the idea that women are assumed to be the ones at home looking after the children and men are the ones who are supposed to go out to work and look after their children, these are all deeply rooted gender stereotypes that feminists are trying to battle because they're also at the root of maternity discrimination in the workplace, for example. Or if you look at something like the male mental health crisis, a huge amount of the evidence available suggests that boys grow up in a world that teaches them boys don't cry. By the point that you reach university, fewer than a third of those accessing mental health counselling services are male students. So if we were to actually tackle the gender stereotyping that prevents men from feeling able to reach out for support when they experience mental health problems, we would be tackling that male mental health crisis, the fact that the male suicide rate is three times higher than it is for women. All of this comes back to exactly the same outdated gender stereotypes that feminists are fighting against. So yeah. really, it's a trick to suggest that this is a battle when really we ought to be on the same side. Well, actually, it's interesting. I thought your book read, and I want to get back to this, rather than just clipped for, for instant reactions, was very powerfully pro-man. Because, in fact, in many sections of it, it was describing how limited versions of masculinity are and how answers lie not just in punishing this man or that man, though one has to, back to that in a minute too, but rather with deep structural change. Now, my concern on, you know, on your behalf is pompous, but is the same thing that happened to Martin Luther King. He's absolutely marvellous on equality, but when he says, look, the real issue here is poverty, and he tries to work poverty into a major issue, he goes up north and everything and does it best. He's sort of no longer got a pull, a claim on a public attention. And talking about poverty and talking about neglect of people and public services and opportunity makes you just another of those lefties who wants more money to be spent on the state. So you, paradoxically, this is a long question, your unique selling point relies you not on you not going too deep. Well, I think we have to recognise the complexity of these issues because it isn't possible to tackle them if we don't. Um, and actually, it's really important to say that there is an enormous issue of race here. That was one of the things that became very clear when I was looking at the book, when I was researching these communities. I knew that there were strong links between white supremacist communities and neo-Nazi communities and the far right and alt-right, the so-called alt-right and these groups. But I hadn't realised until I really started researching it that actually there they're really part of the same community. You can't really even think of these as separate issues because these groups are seeing deliberately and, and specifically seeing the recruitment of men, young men into anti-feminist misogynistic ideologies as a kind of slipway, a recruiting tool for the far right and for white nationalism and white supremacy. So yes, it might be easier to say, let's just pick one top line shallow element of this and try to catch people's attention. But what use is catching people's attention if you're not actually going to be able to follow through and change anything because you don't have a deep enough grasp of the issues involved? You know, it, it might be good in terms of getting on the front page of a newspaper, but it won't necessarily mean that we'll go anywhere. And actually, I think that's a little bit where things have stalled in recent years in terms of attention paid to these issues. People are quite happy now to talk about violence against women. They're quite happy to talk about Me Too and about an outpouring of women's righteous grief and anger, but they're not so keen to delve beneath the surface and to look at why that's happening and 
what the kind of structural root causes of that are and and indeed how it intersects with poverty and and class and and racial inequalities. And although it might be tempting to try and present a very simplistic version of all this, ultimately it's not a version I think that will lead to effective and robust solutions because these issues are all interconnected and, and you can't get away from that. Yeah, but it's both and, isn't it? It's both punishment and efforts to deal with the underlying core. Because Absolutely. you do the draw this close comparison with, with terrorism. You've mentioned it a couple of times this afternoon. And I was fascinated by that, not I just because I teach terrorism. I was fascinated. The political power of the label, and it's not labeled. But then you seem to support a kind of prevent agenda, which is about get them early, there's a conveyor belt. And that's what applies to understandings of extremism, political mm. extremism, but it's often controverted by commentators who say there isn't, it's made up. But your idea would be to have this wide circle of people who sort of lend credence to the manosphere and then ever narrowing circles of people who are more and more extreme. And then at the very center is the guy who will show up at a sorority with uh, a gun and kill people. Is that more or less it? So this, But that means you have to take on quite tough enemies who are quite credible political figures yeah. Uh, who, who, who you then accuse of being purveyors of terrorism. Let's not run away from the word. Quite a big thing to do. Well, it's not necessarily about suggesting that every link in that chain is somebody who meets the definition of a terrorist. It is about suggesting that the kind of Overton window, if you like, of politically, publicly um, acceptable discourse is, is inevitably widened by men in positions of power, men like Donald Trump, for example, is a good example of this, who doesn't necessarily say things which are as extreme and as unacceptable as the ideology you'll find within these extremist communities, but who nonetheless is throwing out dog whistles that these communities perceive as an active endorsement of their ideology. And crucially, I think what that means is that if you're a teenage boy being rolled closer and closer towards the center of that web that you've just described, then that journey is lubricated by the fact that the president of America said you can grab women by the pussy or said it's a very scary time to be a young man in America because of Me Too, which is very suggestive of the agenda around false rape allegations, for example, because you think, well, this doesn't sound quite so extreme and ridiculous or unacceptable if you've heard the president saying things like that. So it's not necessarily about taking all of those circles of the problem and treating them in the same way. For me, it's about looking at how you can slow down or divert the pathway of teenage boys or vulnerable young men from the outer circles being rolled in towards the center? How can you prevent them from reaching that center? Because all, all the work that we, we know, everything we know about radicalization and extremism suggests that it is much easier to prevent that happening in the first place than it is to unpick and de-radicalize after that journey has happened. Yeah. And that doesn't have to mean shutting down the freedom of speech of those men who might be interlocutors who say things I object to but aren't out right terrorists. It doesn't mean trying to prevent young men from ever going into these spaces online or, or shutting down their freedom of expression. I think it means empowering them with the tools themselves to question, to circumvent, to challenge these ideologies when they come across them. And at the moment, I think we're leaving young men very vulnerable to these bad faith actors by not giving them those tools. But not the criminal law. I mean, I, I, you see, for example, the prevent analogy would lead you to the criminalization of the glorification of terrorism. The prevent analogy would lead you to quite a range of criminal offenses for downloading stuff that is celebratory of this or that. Mm -hmm. You could quickly find that the criminal law is quite a battering ram here. How far down that route? Perhaps you wouldn't go there at all. You'd rely on social change. We'll discuss that. 
But how far down that route would you be prepared to go? Well, I certainly think that I would I would favor social change. I think this is about conversation. It's about opening up space for conversation. It's about providing young men with space for socialization, for exploration, for a sense of community and purpose and pride and brotherhood, all of which are the seductive elements of these online communities that are currently so effective because of the fact that the real life offline opportunity for those sentiments has been denied to them. And I'm sorry, but it does come back to the closure of youth centers and funding for offline space spaces for teenagers and young men. But I think that that also uh, has to happen alongside political support. So I do think there is space for legislation here, whether it's around really recognizing these particular forms of terrorism, when they meet that threshold as forms of terrorism, for getting them on kind of counter extremist watch lists and so on, for social media platforms to be held accountable where they are providing a space actively for incitement to violence and hatred, which at the moment very much is happening with impunity. But that doesn't have to mean a kind of sweeping, heavy-handed um, legislative agenda against people who are vulnerable to and, and victims to this kind of rhetoric online. I think for me, it's much more about empowering them with the tools to question it themselves. It's about education rather than punishment. Yeah, the domestic abuse bill, are you a big fan of that? Does it deal with some of this? There's something going through Parliament at the moment you know of, I know. Yeah, the domestic abuse bill, which is going through Parliament at the moment, has a lot of positives to it, creating creating the position of a domestic abuse commissioner, for example, for the first time, um, recognising the importance of coercive control as a form of domestic abuse. Um, there are also gaps, for example, the failure to protect migrant women who are survivors of domestic abuse who have no recourse to public funds. It isn't a bill that works for all women in our community, unfortunately, and so it really fails on that front. Um, but there isn't at the moment really an awareness of the issue of, of this particular form of radicalization and grooming and extremism. It really isn't on the radar whether you're looking at something like that bill or whether you're looking at teachers in schools and what they're supported to, to try and, and help young people to look out for, whether you're looking at parents and what their awareness is, or whether you're talking to counter-terror organizations whose job it is to try and act against some of these issues. When I rang some of them up on the phone during the research for the book and used the word incel it went very quiet at the other end of the line and they asked me to, if I could spell it and repeat what I'd said which organization but, for the liberation of where is that you it know? really isn't on the agenda um at, at many of the organizations I spoke yeah, to I can see that I can see that and um, you make a powerful case for it but schools education you know we've got a question we're getting a bunch of questions in Laura which is great from from the people watching and Titus uh, Alexander do we need an educational campaign for boys in schools and community settings. And I ask that against the background of this remarkable new story, which I must say you predicted years ago about the, the, the level of casual, misogynistic, manosphere behavior there is in schools. Uh, so, so schools present a particular challenge. In your book, you write an upbeat story about how you've managed, a school has managed to change its culture. But how deep a problem is it changing culture in schools and other particular schools more dangerous in inverted commas than others in this regard. It's a it's a huge issue and one that we are just starting to recognise and talk about now, but it is really the tip of the iceberg. Um, it, it is very much something that exists across all schools, in my experience. It isn't something confined to private schools by any stretch of the imagination. It is something that is really all pervasive and it is something that we have known about for close to a decade now. You know, we've known for over five years that there is one rape per day of school term on average being reported to UK police as happening 
happening inside a UK school. The reporting rate for rape in the general population is 15%. And by the time you get to university level, it's 10%. So you can kind of extrapolate from there. We really are talking about the tip of the iceberg. We've known for close to a decade now that a third of teenage girls say they experience so-called unwanted sexual touching at school. In other words, sexual assault under UK law. The government has been aware of these issues for years. The Women in Equality Select Committee back in 2017 did a huge and comprehensive report about this, including those statistics and enormous, massive testimonies from the specialist women's sector about the issues girls were facing in schools. So we have known for some time that this was an issue and it is something that hasn't been acted on. It is something that we can tackle, but it requires a really robust plan. It requires proper reporting procedures. It requires schools to take a full school approach, not to think that they can just have one assembly and tick a box and it's finished. It's a cultural issue and schools will only tackle it if they really have top-down leadership and if they really take this on as something that will take a huge amount of work. It can't just be about an RSE curriculum. If you're functioning in a school where a girl is sent home for wearing a short skirt because a boy sexually harassed her, it has to be a, a holistic approach to the way in which schools deal with sexual violence and with misogyny as a whole, not just a kind of a quick lecture and then assume that the problem's dealt with. So you're a head teacher and say, look, who says, Laura, you've come in. I've got six people coming in directly after you. Their solution to each of the issues they're concerned with is to devote whole school answers to problems, holistically engaging the entire school as a center of their strategy. Why is your one so special that I should ignore the other seven? Do you know what I mean? The pressures on head teachers are enormous in terms of managing curriculum. The pressure is massive and so it has to be done with adequate resources and funding. There needs to be much better guidance from government to schools on how to tackle sexual violence, to support schools. Teachers need to be supported and fully resourced to be trained in these issues. What I would say is that this is universal. This isn't some specific niche subject that's only going to affect a few people. This is universal to children's lives. The ability to have to form a healthy relationship, to, support, to have respect for somebody that they're in an intimate relationship with to know how to approach a sexual encounter with consent and respect. These are massive life skills. We all agree that children need to be taught about how to read so that they can go out and use that in their lives, that they need to know how to read a map so they can get around or how to count so they can make change in a shop. I would argue that these are equally um, enormous fundamental life skills that will impact all of our lives and that if we don't provide them to children, we're failing them, that this is a, a human right and that it has been utterly neglected so it is seen as a kind of add-on to the curriculum as if it's something that's kind of niche and an extra subject but really it, it is the subject you know how we relate to one another in our lives it will affect every one of us every day for the rest of our lives. There's an unspoken concern is there I'm putting it to you that the big driver the change the transformation here is pornography and we, nobody really talks about it, and parents don't quite understand what's going on, and nobody discusses it out of embarrassment. But youngsters are so, on the data in your book and generally, engaging with these extraordinary versions of human interaction, which are sexually based, very early on. Mm -hmm. is, is this what you're describing, your detective work? Is it a creature of the intersection of online opportunity with solidarity and pornography? How big a role does pornography play? 
pornography certainly plays a role and a significant one at that, although I don't think we should make the mistake of laying all of these issues at the feet of pornography. But if you like, if you think of pornography as the kind of wallpaper of young people's online world, then it creates a context in which I think these extremist ideologies find it much easier to take hold because the kind of mainstream pornography young people are accessing normalizes a kind of very low level uh, everyday misogyny that they almost take for granted as the baseline, if you like. And it's easy for people to say not my child or not most kids but actually we know that 60% of young people have seen online porn by the age of 14 a quarter first see it when they're 12 or younger so we really are talking about most kids coming across it and what adults as you say often don't recognize because we are at a unique moment in history that's rarely discussed where a generation of non-digital natives are parenting and educating a generation of digital natives that creates a massive vacuum a kind of culture gulf so when I talk to many parents and teachers about online porn, they assume I'm describing a kind of um, online version of a Playboy centerfold or an FHM pullout. But what you're actually talking about in the most mainstream, easily accessible websites, the kind of thing a curious 13-year-old might find if they typed sex into Google and click the top link, is websites showing sex as something violent, degrading, humiliating, done by men to women. And one in eight of those videos, according to recent research out of Durham University, shows sex acts which are actually illegal. So rape, sexual assault, coercive control. So the normalization of that in terms of young people's ideas about what it means to be in a relationship or to have sex is just massive. It's very normal for me to go into a school and hear kids saying rape is a compliment, really, or it's not rape if she enjoys it. I was in a school where they'd had a rape case involving a 14-year-old boy and a teacher had asked him, why didn't you stop when she was crying? And he had said to her, because it's normal for girls to cry during sex, because that's what he'd seen online. And this comes back, I think, to the question of why. Why should schools be talking to kids about this? Why should schools be doing this? Because if they don't, they leave behind a vacuum and the vacuum will be filled by all of this stuff from the internet rushing in and creating real problems for all of us further down the line. Yeah, Camila. Uh, Cavalcante has written in, she's in the audience here, and asked about what we can do uh, in terms of law to manage online crimes. And she says, so often overlooked and interconnected to an international community. So true. But added to that, would this be the problem it is if the social media uh, industry was not so overwhelmingly male? I mean, there's new awareness of quite how amazingly male they design boy stuff for boys as it were yeah. uh, would it be different if if the whole of what is it called silicon valley still these days was was women Yes, of course. I mean, if you look at the fact that a lot of this stuff is happening on Facebook, and then you realise that Facebook actually started out as a platform for boys at university to rate their female peers and on their appearance and sexual attractiveness, you can't really not draw a line there. Um, ultimately, the algorithms of certain social media platforms are having a massive impact in enabling radicalization on a mass scale. YouTube is particularly significant here, because of the fact that around 86% of teenage boys are on 
on YouTube and that it's where the majority of them get their information from. I think we have to understand the sheer power that these companies wield in order to recognize why it's so significant. If you take YouTube, for example, 70% of the videos watched on YouTube are those recommended by the algorithm, you know, the little video that pops up and says, try watching this next, and it automatically begins to play. And 37% of all mobile internet traffic internationally is accounted for by YouTube. So put those two numbers together and you realize that about a quarter of all mobile international internet download traffic is people just watching the videos that a YouTube algorithm designed by an overwhelmingly white male team has picked for them. And suddenly it's less of a surprise that that algorithm is being very effectively gamed really by a kind of close-knit YouTube network of far-right misogynistic white nationalist influences. It doesn't mean for a second that they set out to make it that way, but is it a surprise that it might be vulnerable to abuse in that way or that it might be having unintended consequences when the people who created it weren't necessarily representative of the community that they're serving. Of course, in just the same way that the people who make up our politics, our legislative communities, those with the power to change things, aren't necessarily representative of the diverse communities most likely to be impacted negatively by these particular forms of online abuse. Yeah, one of our anon an anonymous questioners has asked whether it's got a lot worse uh, because of COVID and the fact we've dived further into Mm -hmm. uh, kind of remote life uh, with less opportunities, they say, for real life conversations. So true. But do you think, given that that's clearly the case, is it, is it, has it exacerbated things? And is it likely to continue? Or is COVID going to be one of those short term hunkerings down that leads, leaves less trace than we fear in terms of people's real life engagement as opposed to their online private engagements? Well, I don't think anybody has the answer to that, but I certainly think that there is a, a high risk of teenagers who, through no fault of, of highly pressured parents, have been left to their own devices on the internet for a year. I think those of them who may have been more likely to have been sucked into certain forms of radicalization and online extremism won't necessarily be popping out of it because COVID recedes and they're able to go offline again. I think that once these people get their claws into teenage boys, unfortunately, it does tend to be a kind of ongoing process. Um, we do have statistics from a brilliant charity called Glitch to suggest that online abuse of women has increased significantly during the pandemic. So we do have hard evidence to suggest that when we all spend more time and increasing amounts of space online, we are seeing the abuse of women have a sharp uptick. And the likelihood, I think, given how effectively boys are being groomed in spaces like online gaming and bodybuilding forums, the likelihood, of course, is that a year largely on those platforms rather than in real life will have increased the number of them falling prey to these forms of extremism. The real worry, I think, is that we won't necessarily be able to answer your question just in the next year or two, or, you know, as and when a vaccine hopefully takes effect, because we won't necessarily see the impact of this until many years down the line. If, for example, we're seeing the online spaces in which young people are cutting their teeth in debate, learning how to create a political argument, if those online spaces have become so extraordinarily hostile that they simply aren't safe spaces for teenage girls, in particular, perhaps teenage girls of colour and so on, then we won't necessarily recognise that loss, that silencing of their freedom of speech until much later down the line when a new generation of men starts to emerge into political life and people ask, we thought things were getting better, where are all the women? Yeah. So there is a real risk, I think, about all of this in that it is very difficult to answer questions like the one you just asked because there aren't statistics. Nobody is tracking this stuff. It just isn't on anybody's radar and that makes it very dangerous. 
One uh, interesting recent development has been the way football has fought back against online abuse. And football, which you know, sort of would be regarded as not exactly the most progressive community. And it's not, so far as I know, I may be wrong, it's not misogynistic abuse, but it's racist abuse. But the reaction has been to go off social media, has to stand up to racist players. Some of it looks from afar quite impressive. Mm-hmm. And football has kind of this dramatic leadership role in our culture. Iman has talked about something called the Cyber Smile Foundation, which is some football, a footballer, I shouldn't say some footballer, a footballer called Jordan Henderson. So is there the possibility of the mobilization of sports leaders? We see it more and more in, 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 in the field of respect for women. Or is that really hard to contemplate that male footballers, you know, inspired by female footballers getting more and more parity of experience and exposure and treatment in the media, lead something which just says it's not cool. It's not cool, or whatever the latest term is, to engage in this kind of misogynistic behavior. Is that something you'd put time into? Eamon wanted to know whether you wanted to work with Jordan Henderson. Would you put time into that kind of thing? Absolutely. I think for me, the answer to this is to attack it from as many angles as we possibly can. And you're right that footballers are enormously culturally influential in our society. Um, You can't get away from the fact that they themselves are in a sector that is marked by enormous sexism. Of course, if you look at the disparity in pay, for example, between male and female footballers or the tiny, tiny percentage of advertising money that goes into women's sports versus men's sports and so on. Um, So there is some kind of internal issues there that would have to be worked on as well, I think. Um, but of course, I mean, any man in a prominent public position with kind of social clout and cultural capital is in a position to start shattering this normalization. And importantly, importantly, is in a position, I think, to have an impact on young men who look up to them as role models, because a lot of this is about forms of masculinity and what we teach young men, it is acceptable and desirable to project and, and, and ways in which they are taught to perform their masculinity. And certainly footballers are role models for that specific element of our society so footballers choosing to tackle this stuff to talk about it to be unafraid of being vulnerable and emotional all of those things would have a positive effect absolutely but I think it has to come alongside other action as well there isn't any single sector that can fix this on on its own we have to look at education we have to look at cultural and social shift we have to look at social media and online platforms we have to look at politics and legislation and when we put all of that together we can see the dial moving I think. But in a way, Julia Tufts has asked plaintively, revealing that she's a mother of two boys. How can I raise feminist boys, she says. Uh, but creating boys, your book is very everyday sex and experienced by women, but it's seen by men, seen by men. You know, creating boys who will get up in the bus and walk across and sit beside the young woman who's being abused by some fool or will express solidarity. Now, your book told me how important that is, but also, to my surprise a bit, uh, how rarely it happens. How do we raise feminist boys? Well, I think for Julia's boys, being raised by a feminist parent is a massive first step, and probably she's already on the right track by the very fact that she's asking the question, that it's something that she's aware of. 
I think it has to be about little and often. It's not about sitting boys down and having one big scary conversation with them. It's about from a very young age, helping them to become aware of these issues and to recognize and see the inequality in the society around us. Because if they aren't given those analytical tools to challenge and to question and to recognize, it's very easy in a society in which they might get a baby grow at the age of three months that says future engineer while their twin sister gets one that says, I want to be a pretty princess. It's very easy for them to simply absorb this stuff as fact or one real baby grow marketed at naught to three month age teen uh, baby girls that said I hate my thighs which is perhaps the most depressing thing oh. I've ever seen but if we teach children that they don't have to accept what's what's shown to them by society as fact and just the way things are and inevitable then we give them the tools to shatter the normalization themselves and to be part of the change rather than telling them off it's not about punishing boys or telling them off or trying to make them ashamed for being who they are it's about giving them the tools to question and to probe it's about mentioning the little things when you're in the supermarket and you go down the magazine aisle and there's a sign that says women's magazines and it's got celebrity and diet and 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 fitness and then on the other side it says men's magazines and it's got national geographic the new scientist the economist political magazines that sends a message. And if kids just see that, they learn, okay, so history and politics and science are for boys and diet and celebrity are for girls. But if a parent says, that's weird, isn't it? Should we put one of those magazines in the other section? Because you know, your mum's an economist, don't you? Or you know, your dad does all the cooking in our house. So that's wrong, isn't it? If you point it out, if you give them those small opportunities, and if you give them the opportunity to talk to you, to have conversations, so that when they reach the age of 14, they can come to you and ask, how do I talk to girls? Or I'm worried about this thing I've seen online, instead of typing it into a forum where a nameless, faceless man somewhere else in the world says, don't worry, lad, don't you know every girl has a rape fantasy you'll just be playing into it wink then you'll be giving them the structure to have other avenues to explore and that won't be the only place available to them to go for advice as you say that it strikes me that there's a mismatch between where the culture is presenting in the shops and so on and the real lives of people and that's a cultural gulf that's preserved by advertising by television by self-promoting versions of beliefs that are shared by many people so puncturing that is hard work Yes. That because you're the killjoy constantly saying, don't get that magazine. Don't do this. Don't do that. But the answer is partly also to approach the shopkeeper, isn't it? And to sort of build connections with, with the stores. What, how do you keep Kimberly Vinton came in early on this? How do you maintain hope and resilience in your work? Because your work, it, people you haven't read this book. I mean, some of the stuff you had to do was not attractive. I mean, the diving deep into these things. Uh, and building connections with people under various covers, I miss this all. Uh, how will you, how do you, how do you keep hope up? Well, I think you realise how many different ways there are to tackle it and how many people there are who will. You know, it's not just about saying don't read that magazine. It might be about um, letting them buy the magazine and talking about it once they've read it. You know, yeah, it might be about talking to the shopkeeper, but it also might be about encouraging your teenage daughter to feel like she can walk into a newsroom and apply for a job and change the statistics that right now just one fifth of front page newspaper articles are written by women in the first place. And then we're getting the, the issue further down the line. So I think... 
I continue to be hopeful when I see the ways in which people are finding in their own daily lives to disrupt this normalization and to fight back. And it might be something really, really small. It doesn't always look like signing a petition or going on a march. It might be the man who wrote that the Everyday Sexism Project entries had opened his eyes to the first time to the reality of sexual harassment and how it feels for women. And when he went out the next day, he saw some builders shouting at two women just ahead of him on the pavement, shouting, get your breasts out. And he panicked and and, and everything he'd planned to say eloquently went out of his head but he knew this was his moment to challenge it so he lifted up his t-shirt and showed them his instead and it was a very very tiny thing but it said to them you wouldn't do this to me so why are you doing it to them and it was one tiny thing that made a difference and when I read about the teenage girls who are being told that they can't wear leggings to school because it might distract the boys who turn up the next day and pick at the school with placards that say are my trousers lowering your test scores or the women in workplaces who are choosing to stand together to tackle sexual harassment and say enough is enough or you know receive a message from an 80 year old woman who said that she'd carried the pain of sexual assault for her whole life and that seeing these other stories of other women talking about it had made her realize for the first time that she wasn't to blame and it wasn't her fault and she wasn't alone every one of those things to me represents a a chip in the glass of this normalization that tells us this is just the way things are there's nothing you can do it's always been this way and it always will be and I think that you know it just takes enough tiny chips and enough people knocking and tapping to shatter the glass eventually Well, look, we're going to have to wind this up. We've got lots of these questions. I can't resist asking you a couple of questions. Look, this is the British Academy. We are professionally committed to academe. Here you are. Why aren't you a lecturer in this or a reader in that? Why have you not gone into academic life? Well, I do visit lots of universities and work with students who are incredibly inspiring and, and, and finding their own very inventive ways to challenge this stuff. And there are brilliant feminist academics, you know, Dr. Fiona Vera Gray, for example, who's behind the research from Durham University and Claire McGlynn, who I cited earlier. There are so many incredible feminist academics who are tackling this stuff and are, are working on it. Um, for me, this is the path that has that has presented itself to me and that seems to be something that I can do that's useful. I think we all have our own small part to play. I think the most important thing for me is that I feel that I've been given a responsibility that you know nearly 200,000 women and girls have shared their stories with me. And if there is anything I can do to use those stories in the most targeted, pragmatic way possible to try and prevent another generation from going through the same things, then that's the small part that I'm really happy to play in, in trying as so many of us are standing alongside each other to, to change things. Yeah, and what's next? Is there a new book or a new th- thought or is it I mean in not a derogatory at all more of the same building up the support the solidarity achieving change um yes and and I think for me it's it comes back to this idea of trying to find lots of different ways to tackle the problem all at once um so for me I thought back to my teenage years and the fact that I wouldn't necessarily have been reading non-fiction and if you'd asked me what feminism was I wouldn't have known what to tell you but I was devouring novels so because young people for me I think it's a very important place to start and to try and tackle this stuff I'm writing a young adult not novel which will come out later this year which tackles some of these themes but obviously through a different format which hopefully will reach a few people who might not necessarily have heard me talking about these things in a more formal setting. Fantastic. You've got these two honours. You've got something called the British Empire Medal, but you've also got Cosmo's Ultimate New Feminist. (laughs) I want you now to tell me which you're prouder of. (laughs) Oh, goodness. 
Um, well, I suppose anything that gets people talking about these issues and, and that reaches a new audience who wouldn't necessarily have been aware of this stuff before, that's incredibly important, isn't it? So both, both neither, neither are particularly good, important, really, because it's not about me. And it hasn't been from the beginning. You know, it's not been about me or giving me awards or telling anybody anything about me and who I am. The thing that has absolutely made this effective and, and made it work, which it, it never would have done if it was me on my own standing on a soapbox, is the fact that 200,000 people have shared their voices together. That's what will create change. And really, that's what matters. It's those voices. Laura, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this British Academy podcast. Please subscribe, share and rate this series from wherever you get your podcasts. For more events and conversations, please visit www.thebritishacademy.ac.uk or find and follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.